What's up, Calvary? Episode 92 of the Calvary Cast. Welcome on in. I am Graham Parker, Associate Pastor at Calvary Bible Church in Grand Junction. And again today, I am flying solo. Last week, I was not alone, so I had the Floyds alongside. Today, I'm actually all alone. That's okay, I've executed a uh, skillful coup, kicked Jess out of the podcast. Uh, not intentionally, but uh, he is away, and so I am continuing on with the podcast today. Typically, we take weeks off, but not today. Uh, I had something I wanted to share from uh, something I did earlier this week, or I guess it was last week. Uh, we have a group of folks that meets at our church about once a month right now, all people from our church that have battled with cancer for years, some of them. Of them. Some of them are clear. Some of them are still continuing to treat and different things like that. And uh, maybe we'll do a podcast one day on how this all came about. But um, the the goal of the group is to get together and encourage one another from the scriptures to think biblically about suffering and largely to to help equip one another to minister to others who are suffering in similar ways. So what we're going to be doing for the next couple of months is be working through a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Rogop, and it's on lament. And uh, so one, if you're, if you're a person who's walked the road of cancer and, uh, or you're dealing with it now and you're part of our church, uh, you're welcome to join us. Um, but as we were being introduced to that book, I thought it'd be helpful to walk those folks through what is lament? Uh, oftentimes, we think of lament as something that is very dour, very sad, um, which it is. And so, many times, people in suffering or difficulty think we need to focus on the positive, uh, not not focus on what they would perceive as the negative and things like that. And so, a question might might come to somebody that's hurting and say, why do you want me to think about lament? How is lament a good thing? And so... That's what I kind of want to do today is walk through what is lament, why is it good, and then what do the scriptures, uh, how do they help us learn to lament? That's what we want to do is learn to lament because it's a it's a gift from God. So this uh, book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he defines lament in this way. And he says, in short, it's a, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Now, As you even are listening to this, you might be thinking, what do I need to learn about lament for? I'm not not lamenting anything. I'm not overly sorrowful. I'm not walking through a dark season of suffering in my life. But yet the reality is is that you probably will come along somebody who is, uh, or you might yourself one day walk through that. And so having this idea of what biblical lament is is very helpful. And it will help you as you come alongside, again, uh, people that are hurting deeply and they are lamenting, you'll understand what, what's going on. So lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. We all experience pain. We all suffer. And so what lament is doing is it's giving us language to express that pain to the Lord. But lament is not simply venting. It's not just getting things off our chest, and it's not anger at God. Uh, sometimes in our laments, we may sin, against God and become angry at God, that's not lament. That's anger at God. Now, lament serves a purpose, and this is what the scriptures teach, is that it moves us to this place of trust, and that's where that short definition is, is helpful. The other thing that's interesting to think about with lament is that there can be an uncomfortableness with it. 
especially if maybe you're watching someone lament. Someone is lamenting their pain. We might be tempted to say trite things like, it's all going to be okay, it's all going to work out, just be happy, don't focus on the negative. And it's not that those things aren't true, but what it's doing is, is in essence, saying there's no place for lament. And again, that's not the case. The Bible, the Psalms especially, are filled with lament. The other thing I think that makes this uncomfortable is this is a, a language that in our culture, our context, is not really used much because we like to kind of paper things over, mask our pain and suffering, and try to put on a, a positive face because oftentimes suffering, lament, makes us look weak or or vulnerable. So what I want to do is I want to walk through Psalm 73, which is ironically, as I mentioned this to the group the other night, probably not one of the first lament psalms that people would go to, but it's one that I, a number of years ago, was introduced to uh, in the context of a lament as I listened to a talk from Michael Card on the psalms of lament and how we worship through lament. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by just reading the first 15 verses, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. As I read those verses, you could ask the question, what is Asaph lamenting? And in short, he's lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. Right? You could kind of sum up what he's saying there in this way. He's, he's basically asking, how is it that the wicked seem to be doing so well and the righteous suffer? You know, that phrase in there, that their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble. Fatness is good in this context, right? Healthy is the idea behind that. And then he even comes up with the question towards the end of those verses saying, perhaps it's all been in vain for me to keep my hand, hands clean, for me to be, to be righteous, to do what pleases the Lord. So as we look at these verses, verse 1 starts off with something he knows to be true. Right? He says, truly God is good to Israel. But the interesting thing is he's going to add a but to this. And perhaps the pain he experienced, the success of the wicked, caused him to wonder if it's true. Is God really good? And I would suggest that lament often begins in this place. God is good, but this thing has happened to me. God is good, but this thing has happened to me. The picture then in verse 2 
pictures uh, implies him nearly being swept away in a spiritual collapse, right? When he's describing my, my feet stumbling and my steps nearly slipping. It's almost as if this oppression, this, this pain that has come upon him has really caused a turmoil in his soul. And this relates, you know, in all suffering, I mentioned this a, a few weeks back when I preached from 2 Corinthians 1, but in all suffering there is always, a, can be, a questioning of God's goodness. God is good, but I don't feel he's good because of what I'm going through. And in suffering, those temptations can, or those questions can turn into temptations where we're tempted to leave the path of obedience to Jesus and give in instead to our fears and go down the path of disobedience, to stop trusting the Lord and instead trust our own instincts or how we think we should respond. And so lament is actually, again, a help from God as it helps us, it keeps us from disobeying and enables us to do something with this pain that we're feeling. So Asaph really begins his lament in verse 3. And the other thing that you need to keep in mind here is that all of this is retrospective, right? We'll see at the end of the psalm where Asaph lands. But as he's looking back, he's reflecting on the pain he experienced, what caused it. And he's saying things like, God is good, but I felt this way. God is good, but I was under a severe spiritual, in a severe spiritual state, okay? So he begins this lament, and these are some of the things that that he's lamenting. So like in verse 3, he's lamenting that the wicked prosper. Or verse 5, the wicked, they're not in trouble. They're not stricken. Verses 8 through 9, he talks about how the wicked speak terrible things, proud things against God. In verse 10, the people of God begin to follow after the wicked, and it seems that they find nothing wrong with the wicked. He's lamenting that. Verse 11, he's lamenting that it seems God is unaware of all of these things, of the wicked and of the people of God following after them. In verse 12, he says, it seems the wicked are always at ease. Right? They're never troubled. And then in verse 13, he's saying, what is the point of doing what's right? All I've gotten is pain. This is his lament. If you're familiar with the book of Job, a lot of this kind of sounds like the first 38 chapters or so of the book of Job, right before Elihu speaks, which is actually, I think, in chapter 35. But uh, before that, Job's contention over and over is, this stuff has come upon me. I don't know why I've not sinned. I'm righteous. This shouldn't happen. Of course, Job's friends are all responding, no, Job, this wouldn't come upon you unless you're a sinner. So repent, and, uh, and these things will all go away. Now I want you to listen to the last half of the psalm. Asaph laments, and then starting in verse 16, he says this, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You notice verse 16 there. It sounds a bit like Ecclesiastes. Here he's saying that it is wearying trying to get answers for our pain. It was wearying trying to get in a, a direct answer from the Lord for my lament or my complaint is what he's saying. But then in verse 17, something happens. He discerns their end. He says he's in the sanctuary or the temple, the, the place of God, and there he begins to get some answers in a sense. Right, The temple was the place where God's presence was uniquely manifested, right? As the, the Ark of the Covenant is there, you can think back to those situations where the temple is dedicated or the tabernacle is dedicated and the presence of the Lord comes down in a unique way in that place. And so here he is in the sanctuary and he discerns their end. And I think there's a principle here. Our complaints, our laments to the Lord begin to be answered where the Lord makes himself known. Now, as New Testament Christians, we don't go to a temple because we are the temple, right? We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, and he makes us, the Lord makes himself known to us through his word by the power of the Spirit, right? The Spirit opens our eyes to see and understand the word. So that's the, the beauty of, of reading the scriptures as a Christian. How many times can you personally think, I've read through something and I applied specifically to whatever situation I'm going through. So the Lord makes himself known through his word. But then in verses 18 through 20, he well, in verse 17, he says that he's discerned their end. And in verses 18 through 20, he talks about what that end is. He gets that answer to his lament or his complaint. But here's the thing that I think we need to understand. And again, the same thing that applies to our laments and complaints. He's not given necessarily a specific answer. Right? He's told that they're going to be set in slippery places, that they will fall to ruin, they will be destroyed away in a moment. But he's not told when that's going to happen. He's not given a specific date or time or how they will come to an end. You know, on this day, at this time, this army is going to come in and it's going to wipe out the wicked people. There's your, there's your answer, Asaph. He's not given that at all. He's assured simply that they will. So the same thing applies to us in our complaints and our laments about our pain. The expected end of the lament is not a complete picture of what is going to happen. For instance, like we'll see here in just a minute, sometimes the answer is truths about the character of God and what he has promised to be for us and do in us through our suffering. We cry to the Lord in pain. We lament these situations we may be in but we're never met with a specific way that it may come to an end. But we're always met by the Lord, by specific promises of His that we can grasp onto. Verses 21 and 22 are interesting. Asaph here again, retrospectively, confessing what his state of mind was like when he was nearly overcome 
back in verse 2. You remember he said there that my feet were slipping. I nearly stumbled. That's almost a, a, a collapse of sorts. And now he's describing here that this is what my mind felt like as I was walking through this dark season of suffering. Jim Hamilton, a commentate, uh, commentator, said this. He said that he's describing a mental quandary a discrepancy between what God's Word says about the wicked and his own perception of how things go for them. And here he speaks of how his mental struggle had a visceral emotional impact upon him. He says that when he was in that state, he was like an ignorant beast before God. No comprehension, no spiritual sensitivity, no relational connection like an untamed animal. Now, it's true that physical suffering takes an emotional toll upon us. And emotional tough suffering can take a physical toll, right? That's why oftentimes, if you think about the emotional component, right, ways that you think or things like that can have an effect on how you feel. You think about that anxious churniness that you may get in your stomach from time to time. And is it not true that in the midst of deep suffering— There can be times where you feel like an ignorant beast before God, spiritually dry. The Word doesn't moisten your soul as you'd wish, and God feels a million miles away. The psalmist is describing that. Isn't that wonderful that God's Word describes that sort of feeling that we all experience from time to time? And one of the points that we want to take away from this is that it's times of lament the Lord uses to, again, revive our souls, to bring us to a place of trust when we feel like an ignorant beast before him. So in his lament, God meets him. He's recounted what kind of state he was in in the midst of his lament, and now he's moved to trust. What does he learn of the Lord? We see these in verses 23 or 24. And verse 23 begins with, nevertheless, or yet. A lot of the the translations would use that word instead. Every psalm of lament, lament, except for Psalm 88, has this turn in it. Uh, I like what Michael Carter's saying about this, and he's, he's saying it's almost as if the psalmist has exhausted himself by saying what he needed to say to God, pouring out his complaints to God. I think of it maybe like this. If you've ever had a sorrowful, sad moment, and you're just crying and crying, you're crying, and then you get to a point where the tears just stop, and there's almost a reprieve in a sense there. You can breathe again for a moment, and perhaps that's what's going on here, right? The lamenter, the psalmist here, he's cried his complaints to the Lord until he has no more left, and then now a bit of a reprieve, and the Lord comes and meets him. It's also interesting to note the change in pronouns in this passage. Up to this point then in this psalm, it's all been I, I, they, them. And you'd ask, where is God? But after this point, it's all you, you, Lord, you, you, over and over throughout the psalm. And not only is there a change in pronouns and focus, but there's a tonal change through lament, this pain he's been expressing has now turned to praise. So what is he praising the Lord for? What has he learned of the Lord? 
First, the Lord has never left him. He has been and always will be continually with him. Secondly, he learns that the Lord will lead him to glory and even now leads him with his counsel. There are two things going on here. Uh, In the darkness of his suffering, in the midst of his lament to the Lord, the Lord leads him out of it, and he leads him to himself. That doesn't mean that his suffering has gone away, but as we will see, he has learned more of the Lord. He has learned who he is trusting in. The Lord leads him in his counsel, walking in the counsel of the Lord or being led by his counsel would be akin to walking by the wisdom that God gives. Now, we understand biblical wisdom is not perfect knowledge. It's not knowing, again, an exact uh, day or time or the way things are going to pan out, but it is knowing how to respond rightly to each thing that confronts us. Right? As you think about suffering and pain and lament, you need wisdom to respond to those things properly. Like even in James chapter 1, right, as he's talking about what suffering is doing, and he moves immediately to the need that we have for wisdom. There's a connection there that we should see. And then we look at verses 25 and 26, and we see that what Asaph has learned of the Lord, it does something in his heart. Right before in verses 21 and 22, he's saying, I'm like an ignorant beast before the Lord. I felt dry. I had no communion with the Lord. But now he's expressing that he has nothing other than the Lord. He's saying there's nothing else he desires more than the Lord. Here's the reality. If you enjoy God, there's nothing else to be desired or enjoyed. This is one of the reasons lament is so necessary for sufferers. Right? It takes your pain, your questions, and God says, throw them all on me. God is not bigger than our pain, bigger than our complaints. And so we do that. We throw them on the Lord, and we expect an answer. But instead, what he gives is himself, which is far better. So here, in Asaph, in all of us, through this process, what a transformation has been produced in our heart. More than having his questions answered, he has come to realize that he has God. He realizes in verse 26 that he is corruptible. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail me, yet God is not. He is his strength or his rock. And then verses 27 and 28 serve as a conclusion in a sense. Verse 27, he has an answer for what is causing him his pain And he has an answer for the wicked. He knows that they will perish. And then verse 28, he says, He now knows God better, and he has found him to be his refuge. And then verse 28, the last phrase, he has a calling or a charge to tell of God's works. And here's where I think even the the point of suffering, so often Paul makes this in 2 Corinthians 1, the point of lament is, is not only for us, but to help others, to help others learn to lament, to walk through this season, to get to the point where they turn and they now see and know more of God, right? But he has a calling or a charge. It's to tell of God's works. Lament leads to trust, to a greater knowledge of the Lord, to knowing him more intimately, And that will reproduce itself in helping others see and know the Lord better. Now, what the psalmist is patterning for us here is not to be understood in that if you walk the path of lament, everything comes out fine. 
right? We don't want to read this psalm in that way. For Asaph, we don't know if what caused his pain ever went away. And more than likely, it didn't, because even today the wicked still seem to prosper. So think about it this way. You may lament for a length of time and then experience, in a sense, a reprieve, a time of sweet communion with the Lord, greater knowledge and dependence, and that may be a season of your life. Or for others, lament may become a regular pattern of your life as the suffering goes on and on without any end in sight. You wake up each day and you cry out a prayer in pain, and then each day the Lord meets you and leads you to trust Him. So whether your lament is for a season or for the rest of your life, it is a gift from the Lord, something we should learn to utilize so we might grow to trust the Lord more in the midst of our pain. Well, I hope this has been helpful for you today and an encouragement for you as you think about how God wants us to respond to the difficulty and suffering of life, some of the things he's given to do that. At the Calvary Cast, we love to hear from our listeners. If you're a part of Calvary, you know, just come up and talk to us on a Sunday morning. You can give us a phone call or you can send us a text. If you're outside of our church, send us an email at thecalvarycast at gmail.com. At Calvary, we exist for the glory of God, the good of his people, and the Great Commission. So until next time.